So I, I think where I'm at now is is in the hard place of of uh, legitimately suffering, uh, dealing with a chronic illness, dealing with chronic pain, dealing with fatigue, uh, dealing with drugs and the side effects uh, of drugs, um, and having a, a passion for ministry, having a passion for missions, if you will, having a passion for ideas, but but not having the same firepower. So I've been fascinated for some time by one of the great tensions of our shared humanity, our propensity to experience at one and the same time both great love and great suffering, where we can find ourselves both holy and broken, hurting and healed. As a pastor, I've seen people face the worst moments of life and yet in them discover the greatest moments of their humanity where suffering and struggle and injustice birth something profoundly honest and real and hopeful. If you're anything like me, I yearn to hear stories of women and men from around the world who have found themselves wrestling with God and as a result have walked away with a beautiful limp. I'm Andrew Gardner, and this is A Broken Hallelujah. Well, welcome everybody to episode four. Um, we are four episodes into a broken hallelujah. We've had some great conversations with some amazing uh, women and men already, and uh, I know today's podcast is going to be equally as impactful for you. Uh, it's been great to hear from some of you, uh, to be in connection, to hear how this podcast is already beginning to help uh, heal uh, and even just bring some expression for some of you uh, to the pain and the suffering that you've gone through uh, and the ways in which you've met God in the midst of it. And uh, I'm so glad that we uh, are actually reaching out uh, and connecting with people from around the world with this uh, and really helping people to think fresh about um, their own journey uh, and to finding God in the midst of that journey, no matter how difficult or or hard it is. Um, and I think it's that realness and that honesty that makes this podcast so special. And uh, I'm glad that it is connecting with uh, some of you already. Today we get to uh, kind of draw uh, into um, this idea of what it is to hold a broken hallelujah, what it is to hold on to faith in the midst of uh, struggle and trial, uh, and to do so in a way that actually brings a, a clear articulation to a theology of suffering or to a uh, an understanding of what Scripture says about the realities of church, the realities of the community of faith, the realities of walking uh, with God uh, in in um, in relation with those around us and in relationship to the work that we do um, and I couldn't think of a better person to um, really help uh, walk us through that than the person we have uh, today uh, on this podcast his name is Ken Weitzma uh, Ken is a pastor a theologian he's a thought leader uh, he's the founder of the Justice Conference uh, a movement that is global uh, bringing a global conversation to the language of biblical justice in the local church uh, and he's a writer, author, uh, amazing uh, guy, uh, and uh, somebody that I've known for a number of years now, uh, has actually become one of my closest friends, uh, and uh, it's been a real privilege to see what God has done in and through his life. Um, but equally, he's someone that has, um, in particularly recently, uh, really struggled physically. 
uh, with Crohn's disease, something he'll talk a little bit more about uh, later, and had to wrestle with God in the midst of the impact of that disease to his vocation. Um, to what he does for work and uh, how that has been a a deep challenge to him. And so all of that's coming up in uh, our interview time together. Um, And I just can't wait for you guys to hear from his wisdom uh, and to sit under his uh, leadership for a little while uh, and to do so um, with an open heart. And I want to encourage you, uh, no matter what church tradition you're from, no matter what background, uh, we talk quite a bit about the evangelical church in this podcast, and that's my tradition and background. Uh, It may well be yours if you're listening. Um, And just to have an open heart to kind of how we can take a look at ourselves and at our traditions and at the things that perhaps are the good, bad, and ugly of our own community backgrounds. Um, And what maybe the Spirit might be saying afresh into those things in this time and in this hour. So without further ado, uh, here's my conversation with Ken Weitzma. Well, welcome, Ken. Uh, it is so great to have you on A Broken Hallelujah. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks, man. I appreciate uh, you having me on. Definitely. Now, um, I think uh, quite a few people probably listening to the podcast will have a bit of a, an understanding of who you are, but there might be a few that um, are new to you. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, your background, and what you do. Sure. Um, I'm a second-generation um, American, uh, North uh, from the United States of America. Uh, my dad was a, an immigrant from the Netherlands uh, just after World War II. And uh, my growing up was very much kind of a typical um, mid cl- uh, yeah, uh, mid-class kind of suburban uh, upbringing. Uh, but I was engaged to the immigrant and refugee community. We had a family come live with us when, when I was about seven or eight. Uh, they had fled uh, a genocide uh, in Cambodia under Pol Pot, Khmer Rouge regime. And so that planted some seeds. So I, I kind of got to connect with the empathetic side of my parents and, and their desire to, uh, to try and give back. And so later in life, when I got serious about my faith, it was, it was, uh, the, the heart of God for justice that kind of really, um, stirred me on. And so I, I charted a, a path towards ministry, wanted to plant a church and uh, along the way, I was able, um, blessed to, to meet my wife, Tamara. So I'm married to Tamara and have four daughters. And we go uh, 12 years old, 15, 17, and 19. Uh, wow. And they're all, with, they're all with us in the house. And, and, uh, it's a lot of estrogen yeah. you're dealing with. It's, yeah, a couple, uh, couple pets that are female as well. And, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, career-wise, uh, just, just been in ministry. I've uh, been a church planter. Uh, and I've had the fortune to be able to to put some thoughts down in books uh, and to uh, be a part of of starting a few things, Kilns College and uh, and education um, for basically uh, theology of of leadership, of biblical justice and and creativity, uh, which is now called the Voices School of of Freedom and Liberation. And uh, and then the Justice Conference, uh, our church and and uh, the people there were able to birth that back in. Uh, 2011, and and uh, for, for the most part, just trying to bring vocabulary uh, to Christians and to help them see that uh, this this great divide we have in Scripture between the vertical and the horizontal, um, or 
or this kind of omission uh, of, a, of a part of God's character, uh, what we do with our neighbor, um, that, that we could explain that, highlight that, uh, articulate it, and, and hopefully motivate, catalyze people uh, into living like Jesus. So uh, the Justice Conference was a, a fun part of that. Can I ask, um, I, I mean, you've been um, hugely impactful to a lot of people in my church community uh, as you've been in Hong Kong a number of times. And uh, the Justice Commerce Movement obviously is something that my church has um, gotten very involved in over over the years. Um, and I'm deeply grateful to your leadership um, in that area. Um, but I'm also curious as to how that started. I mean, you mentioned obviously being exposed from a young age to your parents reaching out to, to the vulnerable communities uh, that they were uh, ministering to. But how did that passion for justice develop in you? I mean, like you say, you're from the middle class. You know, you you haven't probably experienced injustice in the ways that many uh, in the justice community have. Um, what was it about you wanting to dig into justice more? Um, what you know, what was some of the the real shifting points for you to make that a real passion for your theology? Uh, I, yeah, I would say the biggest thing is um, scripture. Uh, but but uh, if I step back, yeah, formation, um, you know, the fact that my dad used his story uh, to engage other stories that I was able to watch that. My sister did, has done a lot of uh, law work with um, immigration, with uh, asylum seekers. Uh, and so I think in her life, she's, she was doing the same thing, uh, taking what she'd seen and, and kind of paying it forward. So I think our upbringing, but, but scripture really when I read the Bible cover to cover several times uh, over the course of kind of this crucial year in my life, uh, I just couldn't, couldn't miss um, seeing that there's, there was something God was calling us to that I wasn't seeing in the church. I wasn't hearing talked about in evangelicalism and that frankly, a lot of uh, what we were doing in our posture looked more like the Pharisees uh, than it did um, Jesus or, or how Jesus shaped his disciples to, to plant churches or, or minister. So, I mean, the question, are we the Pharisees, was just a driving one for me. Um, and, and out of that, I, I just wanted to learn. I, I didn't call it justice back then. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was love. It was human rights. Uh, it was all the sort of language trying to speak to it. Uh, and then we, we ultimately settled on justice as just kind of the, the longest and deepest um, most biblical word uh, that we could use, even in the original languages. Um, so, so yeah, I, I would say scripture really put in me a fire that there was a message that needed to be taught. Um, and I think I've grown in my understanding of how little injustice I faced growing up. You know, I, I don't think I don't think you know that or see that uh, when you're when you're living a normal life. Like you know, you break your you break your foot, you you get stitches in your thumb, you know, in your mind, you're, you're going through the ups and downs of life. Um, and, uh, and it's not till later that you realize the system itself uh, perpetuates uh, injustice and oppression uh, and privilege. And uh, so, yeah, I think, I think the, the passion for justice really coming out of uh, those formative stages of my life. And then just the deeper understanding has really come from, friends and, and walking with people and traveling and listening. And, uh, and so, yeah, I, I think, I think there's a, a new stage of it even happening now with uh, just all the changes in the world and, and things we didn't see coming. And what does that mean for, for how we do nonprofit ministry? Um, so, so hopefully continuing to learn. 
I mean, you've you mentioned there about the systemic issues, and you've also mentioned the kind of evangelical church tradition, which was both your tradition and was my tradition uh, growing up. Um, and really, you know, obviously, as traditions um, certainly shape us as um, people who have faith today, and all of the good, bad, and ugly of the evangelical church. Uh, talk to me a little bit about your journey in the evangelical church. Um, talk to me a bit uh, about sort of how that did help to shape and form some of your justice thinking today and perhaps did so in the backdrop of, like you were saying, the lack of that conversation taking place. Yeah, I think I think I, I grew up in a unique period of time when you'd show up, show up at a, a an American youth group or or go on a, a trip being held by a Christian group at school, uh, all kind of within the evangelical world. And there was a real Billy Graham style uh, ministry happening. And uh, the Christian camps and, and some of these nonprofit ministries um, would, would really put a lot of pressure on young people to convert, to, to pray a, a sinner's prayer. Um, and, and then that would feed into the stories they told the, the message the donors got and how the money came back in and, and just kept, kept it going. But I think over time it really hollowed out um, the center of, of that culture. Uh, I think it became more a culture than a faith uh, in a lot of ways or more religion uh, than a lived faith for a, a lot of Americans. Uh, and so con- conservative got blended with Christianity um, yeah, just being religious or spiritual kind of got blended with it. But so I had a real tension with um, overplaying the what what was the revivalist message. And so later, you know, went in, went into studying the first and second great uh, revival and and awakenings that is, and and uh, Charles Finney and and just that methodology that he pioneered. And then went to D.L. Moody and Billy Sunday, and then you know, obviously to Billy Graham and and on. Um, but it was not, it was not the way people became disciples historically and, um, historically prompting the spirit and, in a, a real Zacchaeus type transformation, uh, that, um, I once was blind. Now I can see, Hey, I once was collecting taxes for the Romans. Uh, and now, now I want to give back, uh, to, to the people that I've known in my community or that I've taken advantage of. And yeah, so I think. I think my frustration with the evangelical church is uh, that it's a church that was born out of privilege, has protected its privilege, and now in many ways we see is is fighting in a very uncharacteristically um, un- uncharacteristic way. If you're talking about Christian values or nonviolence, it, it's fighting to protect itself, and so. Um, yeah, history is written by the winners. And so if you look at the racial history in America and certainly the class history, uh, a lot of the theology and what we're studying in the Bible was was chosen, selected, focused on, and, and kind of passed forward bit by bit in a way that created a, a Bible within a Bible or a theology within a theology. Um, and I think there's a, there's a book out right now, Reading While Black. It's rather recent. Um, it does a fantastic job of, of showing um, you know, that, that every community begins to select its scriptures and, and uh, can have too narrow a reading of scripture that, uh, that only backs or empowers them um, to the exclusion of the text that would challenge us, uh, disciple, disciple us, etc. So highly recommend that. But yeah, the evangelical church, I don't even know how to talk about it anymore. It's, uh, 
it mean, it mean, it means so many different things. Um, so yeah. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, you, you planted Antioch, um, you know, there in, um, in, um, Portland, uh, or on the outskirts of Portland, I guess in Bend, um, I don't even know if that's right to call it the outskirts of Portland. <laughs> Maybe everybody in Bend will be offended by that. Um, but, you know, talk me through the the planting of the church. Talk me through, because, I mean, I'm assuming as you did that, you were like, I want, I don't want to just join the evangelical tradition like I've known. I want to actually start a church that's perhaps going to have some core values or do some things differently. Um, what was on the forefront of, you know, yours and Tamara's heart as you, as you started the church there? Yeah, I think there were some things that maybe were uniquely ours. Like we, we wanted to be creative and, and have an artistic focus. Uh, we wanted artists to feel comfortable coming into our space. Uh, not that they had to leave their gifting at the door. Um, the theology of justice was, was really going to be a backbone, but, but ultimately we took the name Antioch because uh, it's the first place where we see a church being born and, and having to wrestle through um, what are what are the values that are going to define this new this new culture this new thing called the the New Testament Church uh, that's open to both Jew and Gentile alike, and they had they had to um, redefine uh, what they understood as religion. So grace triumphed over religion, and authenticity um, triumphed over legalism or tradition. Um, they they were going to now practice their faith with each other, not excluding um, the other, um, the neighbor. And uh, and they were missional. It's the first church that re- you really see kind of uh, taking their their lead pastor and, and associate pastor, Paul and Barnabas, laying hands on them and, and sending them in this missionary way. Uh, you, you had God calling Peter in dreams and, and other things, but you really see this new vibrant uh, community, faith community in Antioch, um, sending away its best to try and take the gospel to other places. So there's there was a lot of of things in that that I think we wanted to grab hold of and say, how do we shape a culture? How do we start something new? Uh, how do we try and shed some of the things that we've inherited uh, and bring it back to those basics? And yeah, I miss those early days. Those when when it was smaller and 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 newer and and uh, and I think the pastoral side was uh, I was able to put a lot more time into it. Well, that's something I wanted to actually explore with you a little bit um, as a pastor. You know, um, obviously that's my background as well. Uh, and I'm just curious for you, um, the tensions that you've felt as a pastor over the years, you know, the tensions of a growing church, the tensions of that balance between the spiritual versus the, hey, I have to run an organization, um, the pressures to, you know, keep the tithes coming in. Um, you know, there's probably a whole bunch of things that you've had to wrestle with and perhaps uh, others that are personal to you. Um, and this whole podcast, you know, A Broken Hallelujah is really about the idea of how do we wrestle with God in 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 the times where things are not quite as we had hoped or planned. And I'm sure your church planting experience and your pastoral experience hasn't all been roses. Um, so talk us through a little bit of, uh, I think, what those key tensions have been for you um, and how you've perhaps journeyed with God and your relationship with him through those tensions. Uh, that's a great question. And uh, yeah, I think, I think this season more than any other season, I, I, I'm enjoying wrestling with that question and uh, as it's continuing on in my life uh, and not just kind of having easy answers, but I I think the, the personal part of being a pastor uh, is really interesting to me now, as I look back that we use that 
word or that title, that noun, um, too easily and, and too broadly. Uh, and there are actually different things going on. Uh, a prophet is someone who God gives uh, words to speak um, in, a, in a way that's powerful and, and maybe even challenging. Uh, a teacher is somebody that's gifted at articulating ideas and pulling together uh, different threads uh, so that people gain wisdom and gain uh, insight and discernment. A pastor, that just means shepherd, somebody uh, who takes care of the people of God as, as they would their family um, and, and is relationally connected in, in that, uh, both nurturing, encouraging, and maybe even disciplining. And so there's, there are different roles. And I think we use the word pastor um, to mean someone that works at a church or, or someone that gets paid to, to talk about Christianity. But oftentimes, oftentimes what we really mean is that Bible teacher uh, or what we really mean is, you know, that, that prophet. Um, But we don't like the word prophet. Uh, But, but it's, we don't, we, we throw too many, things into that word pastor and ultimately expect people to be uh, good at business, good at marketing. I mean, the brand and branding, I've, I've talked about it so much in my ministry and w- with different people and they've talked with me and we've, we've engaged and tried to be smart at it. But in some ways it's, um, it's, it's a necessary thing as, as part of the competition of ideas or, or whatever might be out there or trying to just do your best but at the end of the day, if you step back and look at it, it's, uh, yeah, there's just too many things that we're touching that, that don't really have to do with, with uh, reading the Bible, sitting in the text, um, trying to speak uh, that into people's lives, uh, inviting them into the journey to walk with us, discipleship, um, to be able to try and teach faithfully and, and preserve ourselves for those ministries and, and let go of the, the stuff that the deacons uh, need to do. Um, and, and by deacons, I mean, uh, not actual deacons. I mean, symbolically the, the text and acts where, uh, the apostles knew how to say no and knew how to let go and, and knew how to empower. So I think personally, I'm, I'm trying to wrestle what parts prophecy, what parts teaching, what parts pastoring, uh, et cetera. And then corporately, yeah, there's, you know, in different parts of the world, it looks very different. Um, Pastors are pastors are doing it in their uh, their spare time on the weekends, not getting paid. There's there's maybe not buildings. Um, it's it's a labor of love. And in the United States, it's a career path. Uh, you go to college and and head in that direction. Um, and so, like any other career or business, you end up uh, in an environment where. Um, consumerism drives some of the decision-making drives some of the values um, so that you can keep up with the platform, uh, the experience that other churches are giving uh, so that you won't fall behind so that you, you know, you can continue to keep people happy, keep people there, uh, keep, keep giving coming in. And those things become really complicated because uh, it's, it's not just selfish. You look around and, there are great people giving their life to Jesus and they have families and, uh, and spouses and, and this is their income. And, you know, and so you want to do the best job you can um, to put that forward. But uh, it's very, it's very different than John, John chapter six, where, where Jesus walks up to a crowd and 
um, and, and basically speak such hard truth that they all leave. Right. So <laughs> Jesus, it wasn't, you know, Jesus's ministry didn't just grow and grow and grow and grow and bring in right, more, right. More, more, more money. Uh, there's a reason Judas sold him out. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and Judas was jumping ship and, and realized the cost of discipleship as Bonhoeffer would say. So I think the, I think the corporate church, depending on where, uh, where we live in the world and depending on what faith tradition we're coming from, there's, there's always those, those tensions that we wrestle with, uh, the, the, the letter to the seven churches type things. Um, and I, and I think coming out of this season, post COVID, we're going to be, uh, looking at a, a lot of different values for the church. Yeah, I totally agree. And and that's actually something I want to pick up on a bit later as we, we talk maybe what the future of the church is going to look like. So we'll, we'll, we'll kind of circle back to that one later, but I want to pick up on that phrase, cost of discipleship. And, um, you know, I, I've known in my 20-something years of pastoring that there's a cost. There, there's a considerable cost. Um, and it's a cost, you know, that we that we bear as we do the job that we're called to do. Uh, and God gives us great grace in that cost. But I know that, um, you know, there is a cost and it is significant. I know for you that cost has been in a number of things, but I know physically there's been a real cost for you. And, um, you know, I know the, the the disease that you've been kind of wrestling with wasn't started by the stress of your church, but I'm sure the stress of pastoring has strongly contributed to it. Tell us a little bit about, you know, what it is that you're battling physically um, and I guess the relationship of your work and the stresses of that work and, you know, the battle in that area for you. Yeah, I, so what you're referring to is... Um, a rather recent uh, 2020 diagnosis of, of uh, moderate to severe or advanced uh, Crohn's disease. And uh, yeah, I'm not a medical doctor, so I, I might get details on, on Crohn's wrong, but um, at least the doctor that I've been seeing, uh, who's a specialist in the area, says uh, that Crohn's gets turned on somewhere along the way and, and you know, it needs a, a stressor that begins it. Uh, and for me, uh, all of the signs point to um, some travel I did uh, back in around 2010 uh, and, and just contracting some, uh, some parasites and just all the, the different medicines for the next year to two years uh, to try and sort that out. Um, and, you know, anyone that's known me in the last 10 years, including you, Andrew, <laughs> know, know how high maintenance my, my stomach has, has been in my life. Um, but yeah, this, this year was a reckoning with that, realizing that um, the phrase mind over matter, you know, that we can just stuff the physical stuff down and somehow overcome it with willpower, um, realizing that, that that just isn't sustainable. Uh, and so in, in my life, just a big recalibration, trying to figure out what are the rhythms that I can live within uh, going forward. And as you mentioned, yeah, stress uh, is like uh, gasoline on a fire with Crohn's and um, and so it's, it's been interesting. So the fact that I've kind of taken a step back allows me to look at a lot of things. And uh, it's fascinating to listen to so many of my pastor friends in, in all sorts of positions, not just lead pastor, um, talk about their IBS and their stomach and their problems with diarrhea and their problems. And, and the reality is, is the stress we're putting on our bodies and the stress that, that is put on pastors uh, or people in ministry really does have a physical manifestation. Like it, it really does um, tie us up in knots or, uh, put a, you know, uh, cause us to, to clench or to, to spasm or to, 
or to feel. I mean, the word, uh, the Hebrew word, if I remember right, uh, that we translate heart, you know, kind of the seat of our emotions. Uh, the, in the Hebrew scriptures, it's actually the guts that's, that's uh, used to refer to that. And, and so I think all of our feelings, all of our emotions are in that, that region. And, and so we're in a season of, uh, of, I think, needing to ask some serious questions about sustainability and how do we uh, care for people and how do we expect them to be human and uh, to have their flaws and their faults and, um, and weaknesses mm-hmm. and limitations. How, how does your... Um... How has your relationship with God been impacted by all this? I mean, um, I'd be interested to kind of uh, draw that out of you. Um, you know, I'm sure there were expectations in your recent role that you've been having as a pastor. Um, you know, the the Crohn's as well as other things have kind of um, pushed that in a different direction. Um, that's not easy, you know, when you when you sort of like, oh, God's called me to this and this is what I'm going to do. And then suddenly it seems like life is in a completely different direction. Um, what wrestling have you had to do? How's that impacted? You know, what emotions have you gone through in your relationship with God? And um, have you found that, you know, you're in a worse place because of it? Have you found that you're in a better place? I mean, what's that journey been like for you? <laughs> if you could give me the answer, I'd, I'd, I'd really enjoy that. <laughs> um, I, C.S. Lewis is a fascinating author. And, you know, obviously a lot of people have studied him, but uh, one of the things he would do is he'd kind of write a, a very left brain um, treatise on something, uh, the abolition of man. And then he'd write a fictional work on that, um, that hideous strength, you know, or he'd write his biography, um, surprised by joy, and then write an allegory, Pilgrim's Regress. Um, it, it, was, it was a really interesting thing how he did that. And, and frankly, uh, I think the, the biggest example in his life was his book on the problem of pain, just a very philosophical, theological treatise about suffering being um, God's megaphone to rouse a deaf and dying world, uh, which, which sounds like beautiful poetry. Right. Uh, and then, <laughs> and then when he lost his wife, uh, Joy Davidman, uh, writing a, uh, basically a journal on suffering. And, and when it was published uh, up until after he died, it was published in their pseudonym. Um, and that's uh, the book of grief observed. And, I think it's really interesting how sometimes we understand things logically or rationally. Like we have an aha moment about a truth in scripture or something in the the church. Uh, And we might even uh, be one of the few in our community that can see that and grasp that. And we communicate it to others And it. We can do it so much that we think we understand it. And, uh, and then you go through it and it's a very different kind of first person thing. So I would say, I've been articulating for years that uh, we don't have a theology of suffering in the American church, um, that, that other uh, places in the world have a much better theology of suffering. They, God was who redeemed them out of suffering. They don't ex- expect suffering to not be there. God is, is, is the answer to how to walk with it or through it. Uh, I think in the United States, we have, we have such a prosperity gospel that uh, if I'm in right relationship with God, it's it's going to mean success upon success upon success. Uh, it's going to mean accolades. It's going to mean affirmation. It's going to mean recognition. It's going to mean health. It's going to mean wealth. Uh, and even if we don't um, espouse the prosperity gospel, it it lives within us. It's a it's a small beast, I think, in our hearts. Um, it, our country is is founded on that. Uh, the idea of the American dream, et cetera. So. 
um, we weaponize it with faith, uh, the American dream. So I, I think where I'm at now is is in the hard place of of uh, legitimately suffering, uh, dealing with a chronic illness, and dealing with chronic pain, dealing with fatigue, uh, dealing with drugs and the side effects uh, of drugs, um, and having a, a passion for ministry, having a passion for missions, if you will, having a passion for ideas, but but not having the same firepower uh, to throw at it that maybe I once did. Um, and that's, that's a hard thing when you, when you think you're running with God, uh, it's me and you, God, <laughs> let's go change the world. And then you wake up one day and, and realize um, it was a lot less of you in that equation to begin with. It was, it was God and his strengths and, and, and what he gives. And, and God also works in seasons. Uh, and so, you know, you deal with all those questions, you know, why, why did, you know, why are we stopping here? Why do we have to deal with this issue? Uh, why do I, why do I have to start um, uh, from ground zero with, with some of these, these things I'm learning about suffering, about life, about relationship, uh, about scripture and faith. So, so yeah, I think I'm in that. I think I'm excited about what it will ultimately mean for me um, as a husband and a father and a, a man and, uh, as a as a Christian going forward out of it, uh, but but I don't think anyone ever um, says suffering is is fun. <laughs> no, absolutely not. Uh, you know, you mentioned um, yeah, you you mentioned your family then, um, and uh, what's that journey been like? Because obviously, this has had an impact on your family. Um, you know, um, you have an incredible family. I've, and I know your family well. Um, but I can only imagine that what you've been through and what you are going through um, has an impact on them. What's what's that journey been like? Has there been any, um, yeah, any sense of guilt in you through that? Um, any sense of, wow, I should have done better? Um, or is it a sense of we're in this together and everything's, you know, t- tell me a little bit about that journey. Yeah, I think with my family, um, they're in a spot where, um, you know, let's just tackle it. You know, this is where we're at. On to the next thing. God's got a plan. Uh, it's hard, hard. It's hard making changes as a pastor. I think, again, we've made it such a an interesting blend of faith community plus career that when you uh, transition from churches, you 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 really end up changing or destabilizing everything in your life. If, if someone else leaves a job, they, they usually lean on their church community. Uh, when you leave a church job, you, you're leaving job and church. It's, uh, it's, a, it's really profound that way. So I think I'm seeing the, the challenges and how they're trying to navigate that. But in terms of just where we're at or my Crohn's, uh, I think they've been incredibly encouraging. I, I think I'm dealing with a lot of, uh, different emotions or experiences that I haven't dealt with before. Um, you know, uh, do, am I, do I have the, the respect of my kids because I've accomplished things or written books? Um, or will they, you know, respect me even in, in physical weakness? Uh, do, um, do I have a sense of identity uh, based on momentum or accomplishment or, um, or whatever that might be, or is, is my identity in Christ in such a way that um, nothing really changes uh, with those other things. It's, it's like Paul saying, whatever I have, I count for loss. Um, so I, I think 
I think just on my journey, um, I'm going through some of those those uh, interesting questions of grace, uh, and what and, and what does grace actually mean in our life, and if it's operative, um, if we're not if we're not just paying lip service, but it's actually a means of experiencing the love of God that that changes, sanctifies us, changes us, grows us. So I, uh, yeah, I feel like I'm these days. I look at pastors and and uh, there's a new openness for me to be pastored by by other pastors uh, while I'm also trying to live out a calling uh, as a, a minister. You've written um, a bit of a segue here um, into your writing. You mentioned it a few times, and I wanted to just pick up on you know on that. Um, you know, you've written a number of books, um, and uh, I think Pursuing Justice uh, was your first book, and you know was really fundamental for our church in terms of our theology of justice. Um, but uh, you know, I think um, uh, the Myth of Equality, a book that you put out a number of years ago, um, was probably one that. Um, I felt was the most impactful for me personally. Uh, you wrote a book basically on white privilege before the evangelical church was really talking about it. Um, but I know that journey also was probably an interesting one for you to go through. It wasn't probably easy to put out a book on kind of white privilege when you were uh, embedded in the evangelical church tradition. Uh, and it's incredibly vulnerable to put art out there because writing is art. You know, it's your feelings, it's your thoughts, uh, it's your concepts. Um, and putting it out there for the world to review and critique is not an easy thing. Uh, talk us a little bit about that process for you, uh, and also in particular how that relates to myth of equality and, and your journey and stepping on a on a topic that you know has a huge amount of sensitivity to it. Yeah, I I, I think it's really easy to point out, uh, point out the flaws in in other denominations or other religions. Um, we see what we don't like, or we see what other people can't see and, and we point a finger and yeah, casting stones is easy. I think it's much harder to uh, take the log out of our own eye or uh, look at our own tradition, our own culture, our own kind of evangelicalism and, and critique it. And so, uh, like I said, I think we, we, if we're not careful, we're dangerously close to the Pharisees and the Pharisees believed in scripture and they believed in, and piety and they believed in, you know, there's a whole lot of things that kind of lined up. Um, and, uh, and so I, I think the people in the, the faith circle, uh, whichever faith circle that is need to need to be able to put language to the things that's going to help uh, that group grow. Uh, if it's coming from outside the circle, it'll just get shouted down. People won't engage it. They won't read it. Uh, they'll be suspicious of it. Um, you know, a liberal book uh, for, for most Christians as I was growing up um, was, was already disregarded from the get-go because, you know, it must not be serious or of God or, or theologically sound. So I, I think there's a, a duty to go to your own tribe. And, you know, Jesus was sent to the lost children of Israel. Uh, Peter uh, went to the temple steps uh, to, to challenge the religious leaders of his day. Um, Paul went first to the synagogues for, for much of his career. And, and so I think I felt a, a burden with, um, with all the things we were doing with, with Antioch and Kilms and Justice Conference. And in some ways I viewed those as a, a tree, the roots, which is um, education, learning, development. And you have the trunk, which is kind of the body life, the church. And then you have the fruit, which is really missional expression or, or justice work. 
And so we just took our heart and our theology and put it into those three different expressions, the roots and the trunk and the trees. Um, but it was all uh, in some ways with an evangelical audience in mind, trying to, to openly and plainly wrestle with the text uh, over and against our, our tradition or our readings um, that I, I want God, uh, as C.S. Lewis said, not my idea of God. Um, I want faith, not my e- evangelical idea of faith. And, and so being uh, the, the young wineskins, trying to, trying to be able to do that. So Myth of Equality, uh, it's the only book that I was asked to write uh, after a lecture on white, white privilege and uh, did, did so with the blessing of, of my friends who are, are leaders of color and, and just wanted to be as honest uh, and open and as humble as I could in that book. Um, and, and just point out that there are things uh, that, that we, have to, we have to wrestle with. And, and those things are theological. Those things are uh, historical in terms of um, American history and, and how we've dealt with race. And then those things are deeply personal, uh, implicit bias, how, how our brains are shaped, the, the hard work we need to do to try and um, address some of the bias or, or prejudice that we have. And uh, yeah, it was it was a difficult book, and and afterwards it was it was difficult, but uh, <laughs> one that I was glad I had the opportunity to write. Mm. Let's just um, the last thing I really wanted to ask you um, as a pastor, as someone who's been through um, you know leading churches in in a U.S. context for uh, so many years, uh, this pandemic, COVID, closing of churches, online ministry, digital discipleship, all that stuff that really twenty twenty has brought up for us. What, what do you see as the future of the church? Um, and I guess that's not just related to what COVID's done, but, you know, there's been huge conversations, obviously, in the U.S. around race in 2020. There's been political conversations. What, what do you see as the future of the church in your context? Where do you think it's going? Uh, boy, I, I, two different buckets. I, I think the one real just uh, simply and quickly is it's it's going to have to – try to be multicultural in its expression and, and strategy. Um, we see in the book of Revelation, every tongue and tribe and nation is around the throne. And I think everyone's familiar with that, but we take it kind of as a someday in the future, the finish line, it'll, it'll be multicultural. Uh, but if you go and look at it in uh, the beginning of Acts at the day of Pentecost, it's, it's amazing how many different ethnicities were present and it's why the Holy Spirit uh, allowed for the tongues and the languages to be spoken. And, and so the, the reality is the church has been multicultural since day one, and it ends multicultural. It's not on a gradual uh, kind of slope towards it, but it, it's supposed to be it already. Uh, the body of Christ is supposed to be diverse. Uh, and I think, I think people are going to expect that in a significant way um, after COVID and, and even the U.S. elections and uh, the first female uh, and woman of color on the ticket, um, I think, is a part of that. And then, secondly, ever since the Reformation, we've been we've been uh, teaching heavy as a church. So the Protestant side of the faith has been very uh, platform or pulpit heavy. Uh, and then I I think with modern consumerism, that's expanded to 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 basically not just be pulpit but platform. Uh, so the music, the quality, the the production, the the preaching. And I don't think that's ever going to go away. I think, I think we always need to be a, a, about teaching and about quality and, and the gifts and worship. 
Uh, but I, I really think in a new way that's going to have to be balanced uh, with the table, which is how are we coming around um, showing hospitality, uh, living life with each other, um, decentralizing it, and uh, not not just small groups, but but really um, centering our faith around the table and the breaking of bread and, and the sharing of wine, the cup, and and then I think that the streets. So I'd say the the platform and and uh, or teaching. Uh, I think the table, and then I think the streets, I, I don't think we're going to be allowed to have a church in America. I don't think we should be allowed to have a church in America uh, that doesn't voice protest on behalf of um, the vulnerable or or the oppressed in society. May, it's been uh, such a privilege to be able to chat with you today and just to kind of go through a bit of your personal journey, uh, but also catch some of that insight uh, in your thought leadership around justice and around church um, and around these important conversations that are really taking place. Um, how do people stay in touch with you? How do how do people who are listening go, hey, I want to hear more from, from Ken or I want to catch more of what he's thinking and saying? What's the best way for people to stay in touch? Uh, sure, I'm. I'm not doing a whole lot on uh, on media these days, but my blog, justkenwhitesma.com, uh, always has a way to get in touch with me. And happy to receive uh, any note, email, letter uh, from anyone, and, and interact that way. And buy your books. Your books are all online on Amazon. I'm assuming. Yes, sir. And uh, they probably even shipped to Hong Kong. <laughs> well, hey, Ken, thanks again for uh, taking time to be with us today um, and really just appreciate your friendship over so many years, uh, your insights into my own personal life. And I know what you've shared today is going to have a big impact into people listening. So thanks so much for being with us. Yep. Love you, Andrew, and appreciate the opportunity. sure that conversation with ken was uh, encouraging and helpful to you uh, our next episode coming up in a couple of weeks time is with someone that uh, i'm so excited to get onto the podcast her name is jacinta reed uh, she's an author who's just released her first book uh, which really chronicles a memoir of her um, struggles with mental health issues uh, and in particular bipolar disorder and um, she's got a fantastic uh really story of discovering uh, and, and dealing with and journeying through uh, mental health challenges uh, and the ways in which, of course, she's grappled and wrestled with God in the midst of it. Uh, so I can't wait uh, for you guys to hear that conversation. Uh, as always, you can get in contact with us here uh, at the podcast. Uh, you can email us at contactabrokenhallelujah at gmail.com. Uh, and I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to hear if these podcasts are helping you, if you're growing in and through them. And also, we're always looking for uh, more people to connect with and to interview and have conversations with uh, who have suffered some form of trauma or some challenge in their life and have uh, grown in their relationship with God through it. And so if you uh, have any recommendations for people for us to get connected with, uh, I would love to hear those. Uh, so do drop uh, an email to us. Uh, but otherwise, um, I'll be praying uh, that these conversations will continue to have an impact into your life uh, as you listen and as you grow in your own journey with God. Bless you, everyone. And until next time, share this podcast with someone that you think needs to hear it. <laughs>